Hey, you're going to love this interview with Simon Huntley, the CEO and founder of Harvey. His direct-to-consumer local food startup is really interesting. It takes pieces from your local farmer's market, a grocery store, companies like HelloFresh and Blue Apron, and rolls it into a genuinely unique service that I'm a happy customer of. In this interview, you're going to hear about the decades of experience that have informed how Simon has grown this company, how they're able to do it profitably, bootstrapped when a bunch of other companies in this space have to raise hundreds of millions of dollars, and the lessons that he's learned building the logistics infrastructure to serve this function. Fantastic interview. Here's my interview with Simon. I want to start off, this is, usually I try to do the narration of the guest's company on their behalf and they kind of build off me. But I feel like you're in this weird constellation of, of food, grocer, food delivery companies. It's hard for me to perfectly articulate. So I'd like to just pass the ball <laughs> to you to kick things off and then we can kind of dive a little deeper. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's been a constant struggle. Like, how do we, how do we explain this thing? Because I think we are, are fairly different than anything else that exists out there. But we are essentially now food delivery company and we source from local farms, local producers, even local restaurants, local food makers, and we deliver direct to home. So um, you can think of us like a grocery store, but we are also doing more, more and more prepared foods. So I think there's like an interesting conversation to have there about how I think our diet as Americans is changing of, of the way we think about like food in home and food out of home. And I think uh, we're playing on that a little bit, but and there's some pretty extreme counter positioning. Because if I just said food delivery to random person, maybe not walking down the streets of Pittsburgh, but walking down other streets, they might think of Uber Eats or DoorDash, which is right. beyond prepared. It's usually a fast food or like a you know a tailored, completely cooked, finished meal sent to you in like as fast as we possibly can, so that it's still warm and edible. Yeah, this is this is quite the opposite. This is much more akin, at least as I think about it, adjacent to the experience one gets at a farmer's market, where yes. you know that everyone is a local provider. Many of the foods are still kind of raw yet to be prepared, but there is some stuff like a you know a freshly made pie, a freshly made pepperoni roll that's still really high quality and you know part of you know a little bit easier to prepare than uh, hey turn these onions in the right. side. Yeah, we certainly come from the sort of farming farmers market angle, and we could certainly talk about that a little bit today. But uh, and so you know we just kept. The through line of my work, especially the last like seven to 10 years has been, how do we make local food easy, right? That I believe that um, that people wanted this food, but that we had to make it really easy. And that's really the impetus behind Harvey and this work. Um, and so, you know, first we come from like the CSA Community Supported Agriculture thing. You ever, were you ever a member of one of those? Uh, I've been a member of the East End Co-op. Yeah, okay. So, uh, so community survey agriculture was something that came out of the, uh, the farm crisis in the 1980s. And it was a way for sort of farms to, um, to create a economic, you know, an economic engine for their farm. So it's like sort of an economic engine for, uh, for local food. And it became more popular through the 2000, especially in the 2000s. And I, I, I helped run one of these farms. And so, um, that, that's an area that I, that I come from, but it, it would be like, a it would just be a box of food coming off the farm, right? It'd be like whatever the farm's producing, they put it in a box and then deliver it to you. And if everyone's been a member of one of these, they would say like, oh, I got a box of kale or I got a, you know, it'd be like things they didn't want. And so, you know, we, we've been trying to figure out like how to make that, you know, since 2015, it's like, how do we make that process easier and easier? So first thing we did was 
how do you customize the box, you know, and then you get into all these like hard questions of warehouse management and things like that for the farms. And, and so that's the angle we come on, just make it easier and easier to access this food. We're going to deliver it to your home. Okay, now we're going to cook it for you, you know, and we're going to keep making that easier. And because and if you think of the old kind of analog solution to that logistics problem, it was the farmer's market. Everyone yeah. maybe local, it may be a, a net super short distance, but in reality, I'm not going to go out to all of these independent farms unless I'm like absolutely, you know, 110% obsessed with sourcing everything there. It's my one chance where everyone's at the same place at the same time. We consolidate and it's these couple hours and then people got to go back to, you know, actually work in the farm and people got to go back to their daily lives. But digital basically allows an, an interface that is, you know, I don't know how you feel about Amazon, but like very similar to the Amazon experience of, you know, let me sort by category, let me find what's in this category, let me add it to my cart and then check out not, you know, it's not delivered there in two days, it's not delivered there immediately, but it's on a kind of weekly cadence. It's actually much more akin to how people tend to grocery shop. They have their grocery day or they have their kind of normal yeah. on, uh, around when they restock the food that's in their refrigerator. Right. Yeah. So we've certainly gone the... You know, there's certainly the 20 minute food delivery stuff that uh, has, has suffered recently because of the like the, the hard logistical challenges and cost challenges of that. And and the way we do it, where um, we deliver one day a week to each zip code in the in the Pittsburgh area, basically. And so that gives us some advantages of like making the cost of delivery relatively make sense. It's still very expensive <laughs> for us to do delivery, um, but it actually can make some sense versus these these grub. But I mean, maybe an aside, but like I ordered my, I have two boys, I have an eight and 12 year old and, and they wanted burgers one day. So we went on Grubhub and we ordered like five guys burgers and it was like $58 for, I think it was two burgers and two fries by the time you got the fees for, you know, delivery and everything like that. And it's just like, how, how sustainable is that? You know, and you, ha you have this system where I think all three parts of that, like the Grubhub, the customer and the restaurant don't like Grubhub, you know, <laughs> like no one likes, no one likes that. You yeah. know, it's like, a, it's a, so um, trying to build like a dis like a local distribution system that makes sense for all parties in that transaction has been an interesting journey. <laughs> yeah. So so tell me about that, because because you guys have thousands of paying members. How many farms are you guys like uh, populating on that? We usually say like 100 to 150 farms and producers and restaurants. Uh, so, yeah. And we're sourcing something like 700 different items on a weekly basis from those. So at a, at a regional level, that's that's real scale. Um, like what, what allows you to do that in the, in a sustainable, profitable way without outside capital? Yeah. Taking the really low and, uh, you know, s slow approach to this. So I've doing, been doing this for 17 years. So I started in 2006, uh, just me and a laptop and started the first 10 years of my career, just, uh, building software for, for farms and distributors. So that's what I did and have sort of like, I basically built three different profitable businesses and kept like shoving my chips to the center of the table and said, okay, take the profitability from this business and go into the next business and, and do it again. So that's been my, that's been sort of my playbook. So uh, you have, so, so just said another way then you not only had the capital to potentially like jumpstart this thing, but the entrepreneurial chops of like, I've actually seen something started. I've, you know, gotten really intimately familiar with the, the metrics and the, the cost, the cost basis to make this thing work. Right. And I'm just like pulling on this thread of like something I can't quite get out of my head is that like local <laughs> local economies should be able to feed each other has been like the through line of this work since, uh, you know, I like I think I had a I think I had a class project in, in college. I went to Penn State up at uh, State College and uh, where we had to build like a, you know, a, a 
database driven website, you know, and I built like uh, with my like small group there, build a like an online farmer's market, right? And that was like the first version <laughs> of what I did. And then, um, yeah, and so it's sort of just been like seven different like tries at that and just keep pulling on that thread of like, how can I make this better and how can I make this more sustainable for like all the all the parties in there, including myself as like a, as a business person who needs to like, you know, pay salaries and like <laughs> make everything work, you know? Yeah. So what makes Western Pennsylvania such a good place to run a business like this? That's an interesting question. I mean, for me, I think it's it's been the place that I know and that's been really great for Harvey in this and certainly in this iteration. Like the pre in in previous times, we were working with like farms and distributors across the U.S. and Canada. Um, I think like, Pittsburgh was a good place for that because, you know, relatively low cost of living, good talent here. And, you know, we had a small team of like five to seven people and we would run that business. But um, Harvey and like really focusing just on this area, um, you know, I've, I've, get, I've been able to like use all the relationships that I've created over the years with different farms and, and producers and and also just i think that that story aspect of being you know literally i grew up on a farm in western pennsylvania and trying to build this this local food economy is like a story that makes sense you know um and then something that i can really like i can get behind as someone from this region um and i think we can do we can do so much more i think from a farming perspective there's something like 2.5 million acres of farmland in in this sort of you know in this region, including like Western or Eastern Ohio as well. And something like 95% of it is devoted to industrial agriculture, you know? And so like we can, uh, we can grow a lot more food locally. It's just like that middle of the supply chain hasn't existed. Like how do you get it from the farmer, the producer uh, to the, to the customer? There's just no, there's no incentive for anyone in the system to do that. There's no incentive from like the grocery industry to do that. Like there's no, they might do it in little ways. Right. Um, so, so we sort of had to like rebuild that like middle of the supply chain all the way through. And, and I think the internet gives you like a really good way to approach that, like you were saying. And, and I've read some of your writing too, that basically says that like, you know, just the climate and, and the, the actual landscape that we're in makes that possible. I'm, I'm not in any stretch of the imagination a farming expert, but I have to imagine that like, if you live in the swampland of Florida, there's just certain stuff you can't grow there, period, end of story. Yeah versus or like in the you know deep in the mountains of like the rock rockies i've always thought of like the plains as america's breadbasket but reading your writing has made me start to believe okay there really is a diversity of food that can be grown here locally right. well you know i'm i'm also not like a historical expert on this th stuff but like this was the breadbasket you know in uh, at some point in our history right you know um and and so we certainly have a rich, rich agricultural landscape. I think like what's happened to U.S. agriculture over the last, you know, since World War II has been like sort of a hollowing out of the agriculture in this region, which I think has been, you know, bad for us on a lot of levels. But like a lot of it has gone west, right, to the Central Valley of California to, you know, especially that area, but west in general. And they are experiencing these water woes that, you know, uh, it does it does seem like our 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 system agriculture is going to have to re-easternize over time just from a water perspective. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of ways to approach that. But So can you just teach me a little bit more about what's going on at like maybe a national level <laughs> for farming? Because you've now referenced a, a farming crisis of the 80s that I was yeah. not aware of in any way, yeah. shape or form. 
the specific policies that might have hollowed out local agriculture after World War II, <laughs> I'm not quite sure I could you know, point to in any way, shape, or form. Right. And then more modernly, water woes. Can you just kind of give us a brief education <laughs> on those three? Because I'm, I'm not as familiar. Right. And I think like, I will caveat this to say that like, I think industrial agriculture, the way it's been practiced here is, is, has been in a lot of ways a phenomenal success, you know, that, that food is, you go into any grocery store in this country and look around at how much food there is. And it's just, it's an amazing cornucopia of food that we've been able to create. So, you know, from that respect, it's hard to fault like what we've done over the last, you know, hundred years, but certainly, you know, hundred years ago, I, I don't know exact numbers, but something like 10%, 20% of the population would have worked on farms and now it's less than 1%, right? Um, so, so that's certainly part of it. But, um, but I think what it has done is like, it's broken the connections between each other. And I think like, I sort of believe like at a really, ma at a really macro level that like food is the way that we connect with each other, you know, and, and then this like completely separating those two things out and trying to like, mm -mm pretend like those connections doesn't exist has been bad for like the social fa fabric of this country. But, um, but I also understand like why, why it was done because it's more efficient to do that that way. But I think with some of these new tools that we have with the internet, like that we can sort of like connect people in a better way that just wasn't possible 20 years ago. Got it. And so what was the, what was the eighties crisis that you were taking? <laughs> oh, so what would be the reason for that? Um, you know, I'll have to study that more. <laughs> okay. Um, so tell me about, you know, some of these other, uh, I don't know how much you've studied them, but some of these other food delivery companies that have gone really big scaled models. I was looking at, looking it up. Uh, HelloFresh is down 80% since its IPO. Its net income is like 2% brutal. And it raised $367 million in order to accomplish that. Even worse is Blue Apron, which is down 97% from an IPO. It's not profitable. It's been losing tens of millions of dollars for like five consecutive years and raised $422 million. So it, it sounds like, you know, superficially, part of the way that you're avoiding that fate, not following that path, is the orientation towards hyper-local and uh, kind of more methodical, slow-paced, uh, bootstrapped way of building a business. But are there other things as you look at those businesses that you're explicitly avoiding from what doesn't seem to have worked particularly well for them. Yeah. Um, certainly, I think there's like a capital structure thing that, um, again, like I'm not an expert on this. So because, you know, I've just I've run my business in like a profitable way and like through the years, although, you know, we have had to invest in this business the last couple of years. So I do understand how how difficult it is. I think one of the things that I see is that especially coming from a software background and coming to this sort of background now that's like a basically a distribution or a food distribution company is like, I joke sometimes that when you're running a software company, no money matters. And when you're running a business like this, every dollar matters. You know, there's like a stance difference that's like so different. And so I think when you have investors coming in and thinking, okay, um, you know, we're going to like build a software business out of this food businesses are not software businesses, like high costs of goods sold, high product costs, low margins. Um, and so I don't know if that's part of it, like sort of like raising it too high valuations and then it's sort of being in this like valuation trap that you can just never, never come back from. Because I think one of the, the interesting things about food that I've really has become obvious to me now is that how big this market is, that it's sort of this sleeping giant hidden, 
hidden in plain sight. It's uh, you know, it's literally between food at home and food out of home. It's a one point four trillion dollar market in the U.S. You know, it's like potentially the biggest. You know, depending how you want to like slice things, but one of the biggest consumer markets in the world, if not the biggest, is like American food. Um, but you know, but but the margins are are slim and it's tough and there there there's competition everywhere so so that angle of like telling the story of like where the food is coming from and, and things like that will hopefully like allow us to maintain some margin in the business long term and and as you know admittedly a customer of Harvey's the why is relatively straightforward when you think through the lens of not only it being local there being more of a connection like you get with the farmers market like look in the person that grew your food in the eye Versus you think about factory farms and like the shenanigans that go on at some of these places because it's completely divorced and dispassionate and, and disconnected from whose you know, stomach and digestive system actually has to process what's being consumed. Um, that seems like, like a huge part of it. And then just also the, the story of those was always a little confusing to me. We tried it. We we're like, oh, this is interesting. It's getting marketed the heck out of to us. Um, let's see what's going on. And it was like, this is the perfect solution for someone that has time to cook, but doesn't know how to cook and doesn't want to go to a grocery store. It's like very like this, like multi Venn diagram of people that are, uh, you have to kind of buy into the story. Whereas, you know, that's kind of a mark that the story is not that good. If there's like, you know, a multitude of Venn diagrams that have to match. But you're talking about meal kits right now. I'm talking about those other, yeah, those other meal kit companies. But with Harvey, it's like, do you want to have local food delivered to your house? Yes or no? Because there's no other solution that I can even solve for that for. Like Whole Foods ain't solving that problem for me. Right. Right. Yeah. I think like the, the meal kit thing is really interesting because I certainly watched that fairly up and close because like I was talking, we were talking about community sorted agriculture, the CSA thing, which I've never heard this for sure, but I believe that those services are sort of like based on that concept because they they did have some popularity at that time. And so... And certainly they came along and like solved a pro- like they did a better job of solving the problem, right? Of like what's for dinner, you know. That to me is what a service like Blue Apron or HelloFresh provides, and it's nice, <laughs> you know. It's it's nice to just be like, okay, I'm gonna get quality, like at least in theory. Okay, I'm gonna get quality food. They're gonna tell me how to cook it. I don't have to figure out like, do I have enough carrots? Do I have like whatever? They're just gonna give it to me and tell me how to do it. I'm gonna cook it. Um, so. You know, that's why we sort of moved a little bit more into like we, we're doing some meal kits now. We're doing some prepared foods because I think it is important. I think people have a lot of um, fear in the kitchen. You know, we you know, like I, I grew up with my parents cooked and I was like somewhat involved in the kitchen. But I know like we're getting farther and farther from that. And so like how do you make people feel comfortable? And it's just I think it just like gets rid of that decision fatigue. You know, we do like a. We do a tofu gochujang uh, meal kit. It's a dish that I made a bunch, and so I, I I work with the kitchen staff here to like get them on to putting a kit together. But it's super simple, you know. It's just you fry up some tofu, and um, we we give you the glaze to make the gochujang, which would have like four or five ingredients. It's super easy to make, but it's four or five ingredients, right, that you have to put together. Um, and so. And then we give you a little, like we give you the one cup of rice. So, you know, then you have the one cup of rice and then you have your little fixings and you serve like a, a shaved carrot with it and things like that. And so it, it's it's a nice meal. So I can understand why they exist. I guess I think as I look at those business models, I think that the meal kit is, uh, 
it's like a feature, not a business might be like the way I would say it. It's like people want food <laughs> delivered to their house, but do they care if it's maybe sometimes they want to milk it. Sometimes they want to cook their own thing. Sometimes you just want milk and eggs. Sometimes, you know, like you want all of those things in one place. And then the economics work a lot better when, because like our business as it is now is like, once we're at your house, we we want to like get as much share of stomach from you as much as as possible, right? You know, we want uh, because we already paid for everything, right? We paid for the drive the driver, you know, X dollars to get to your door, depending on where you are and all those things. And it kind of reminds so, me of uh, Jet dot com, which was like famous for the more things you add to your cart, the more the like per unit cost comes down because they recognized a similar thing. They end up selling to Walmart. They recognize a similar idea that it's like man, shipping the stuff to you ain't cheap. Like that is a meaningful cost to us. If we can amortize that across more items, like we still can make our margin and provide net more value to you guys. And there is that kind of effect that we've seen in all sorts of e-commerce environments where, hey, you cross this threshold, shipping's free, you cross this threshold, whatever. It's it's uh, at a reduced right. fee in some way, shape or form. Right. Yeah. So, so the, those services, I think just are not that sticky because like, you know, once you start stop making meal meal kits, then you're not gonna like you're gonna buy the meal kits and you're gonna cancel. But like with us, it's like okay, maybe you maybe next time you just buy you can just buy the ingredients for the tofu meal kit from us. Like, yeah, we're just as happy to sell that to you, probably more so. <laughs> and and at 700 items, there's real variability, and I'm right. sure you're gonna continue to add to to that number. Whereas like the meal kits, it's like there's some variety, but there's not that much variety. Like they're, they, they have to, in order to be scalable, they have to constrain their kind of yeah. menu and optionality somewhat. Yeah. And then there's other pieces I think of it too. Like um, one thing that people love about our service is that because we're local, we're able to reuse the packaging as I'm, as I'm sure, you know, uh, we take the packaging back on a weekly basis, take off the label, break the box down, and then our driver will take it back. And we re- literally do reuse that stuff. That's so all huge a huge task for our staff every day to sort of like reuse this mountain of packaging material. It's actually pretty uh, amazing. I was in there one night <laughs> this week, like, sort of like cleaning up some pallets of this stuff just to get it out of the way for the, the next day. And it's, it's amazing. The, just the mountain of packaging material that we're able to like put right back into the value stream. So, you know, if that say that just decreased our packaging cost by half and you're talking about this is like this, this business, like food businesses are just games of inches, you know, like that, those, those little inches count, you know, towards profitability long-term. And so that's something no one else can do except us. We can only do it because we're running our own trucks and we're at, you know, they, you could never do it if you're using the FedEx and, uh, you know, UPS network. Yeah. Imagine pitching that to FedEx. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then just literally the speed that we need to get it from our warehouse to you because it's fresh food. We have your milk in there. We have your eggs in there. We can never send it through, you know, we can't do two-day shipping, right? So it does limit certainly the amount of, we can address something like uh, called a million households in in the Pittsburgh area, um, which is fairly big for this area. But you know, let alone if you went to two day shipping with FedEx or UPS, you're, I don't know, you're probably fifty million people or something. You know, so it does limit in that way. Got it. And so one of the things that was pitched, I remember hearing the the Hello Fresh guy. He's like you know German, like super tactical, like disciplined, organized kind of type, talking about how the logistics has to work to even eke out that two percent net margin. And he was saying how, um, you know, there's this kind of 
mid zone that you know people are familiar with like 412 food rescue that like you know all the stuff is shipped to the grocery store and it has to sit on that shelf and then get picked and brought home yeah but logistically if you guys are kind of occupying that space from the local farms and you have that kind of planned distribution hopefully there's a degree to which you're also able to optimize and reduce kind of spoilage of food given that you know stuff's being shipped out with some you know degree of anticipation yeah, we certainly see, you know, in the in the retail industry, shrink is what you buy but don't sell, right? That that's that's shrink, you know. So, um, it's a little hard to know what the shrink uh, from a grocery perspective would be overall, and it's different between different departments of the store and the produce department. I believe it's like nine to ten percent shrink in there. So it means like nine to ten percent of the food that you see on the shelf is not going to be sold. It's going to be um, it's going to be thrown away at some point, um, and we're something like two percent shrink, right? You know, and so like there is certainly huge advantages of that. But, you know, we are still like relatively to the rest of the larger food industry, you know, small, you know, even though it's a mountain of food that goes through our warehouse on a weekly basis, it's tiny compared to even what what uh, what Pittsburgh, uh, what Pittsburgh sells. So. So what do you feel like advantage against us on that? You know, what do you feel like is the constraint right now on the business because it's like you always go in these different areas of like i just need the first kind of paying customers or i need this technical thing to just be built and working or i need this relationship or like what does the constraint feel like now with thousands of paying members uh more than 100 farms hundreds of of products and you know to some degree externally it does seem like it's it's catching a little bit i know your team's growing so so what feels like the constraint right now it feels like execution is the constraint right now it's just a matter of like we we have the thing we know what it is and now it's just doing more of it and you know so it's it's a nice it's a it's sort of a fun moment of the business to be in to feel like you know three it's about three years into this version of the business um i don't know if we want to talk about like yeah how what, that what all, prompted that yeah that it's interesting so so in 2016, I started Harvey as like an outgrowth of our existing software business with this idea of like, we're going to make, well, these, I talked about these CSA farms, like make them more custom, like more customer friendly, easier to use, make local food easy. Right. Um, and so the first thing we started to do was like customize boxes. We ran it as a software play again, it was software that those farms and distributors weren't, were going to use. And uh, I would just help them with all the, the, the member management and things like that. And then, so went through that for a couple of years. I had about 100 to 150 farms and distributors uh, on that software. And and so in two, late 2019, a couple of things came together. I was starting to realize that we were going to have to figure out how to do home delivery. I think this is like really a big break. Um, and so I started like running that old playbook of being like, okay, I'm going to go to all these farms and I'm going to say to them, okay, you followed me this far. Um, you know, I did a lot of like writing around this with the farms and just talking about like where the industry was going and whatever. So we had like a good, like thought leadership thing going on. And, um, so I go to them and like, okay, now you're going to do home delivery. And they're all just like, no, (laughs) (laughs) we are going to do that. And so, and then, and okay, so that's happening. And then at the same time in here in Pittsburgh, we had a, there was a cooperative of farms called the Penn's Corner Farm Alliance that was going out of business. They were in business for about 20 years and, um, you know, a variety of factors, but they were going out of business. They had served like restaurants and they had done like the CSA program and like some consumer sales as well. And, uh, I remember 
it's actually at our current warehouse. We have they were all the farmers came in, and we're sitting around in a circle and saying like, "What are we going to do to save this business?" Kind of thing. And I'm sitting over there in the corner. And I'm like, uh, "I think there's something in this direct to consumer thing." Um, but anyway, so that sort of went. They went out of business, and so I'm in this place of like, "Okay, my farms don't want to do home delivery. I know that's where the business has to go." And now there's this sort of opening in the Pittsburgh market where you know there's a warehouse available, and like there's just a uh, yeah, I think a customer base that was ready to to try something new since that that didn't exist anymore. And so that winter has like went through this like <laughs> very tough period from a uh, from a personal perspective where I'm like, oh my, you like I sort of realized like I sort of knew that we had to do this thing, but also it's like we're not a distribution company, we're we're a software company, you know, like why. Uh, why we do and I'd have one week where I'm like yes we have to do this and the next week I'd be like that's insane that's the most <laughs> insane thing and uh, and so but finally just had to pull the trigger on it and we announced that in January of 2020 uh, so we said okay this is what we're going to do we're going to do our own delivery and sort of like saw it as a pilot at the beginning as like the idea being like we would do it ourselves we would sort of like learn what the problems were we build it into our software sort of eat our own dog food and um, and then other farms and distributors would take that and just like go. Uh, and then of course the pandemic hit and uh, you know, everything went crazy. That was actually the week we were going to do our first delivery here in Pittsburgh was that week literally. So the first delivery that we did was Saturday, March 14th, 2020 um, when everything shut down and we were, uh, we had like hired a delivery company to come in and do the delivery. We just had like 30 products. I think we had, we just looked this up the other day. Uh, maybe, 30 members, some of which are still with us, which is really cool, uh, and 30 products. And we just, um, and then the the delivery company didn't show up. And so I called my employees I had at the time and, and we sort of like split up the route and we each did like 10 stops each. And so it was sort of a, uh, a very scrappy beginning to the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, That's one of those stories that like super painful in the moment, but like looking back, it's good. It's good fodder for right. storytelling on podcasts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I did it for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, the food was sitting there, and so it had to get out. You know, so um, so that was the first delivery, and then over the last three years, I've just like you know just struggled to build that infrastructure that it takes that physical infrastructure that it takes to pull off like what what we do every week, which is just you know it's it's quite a sort of monumental undertaking to bring that many products in. I think it's like thirty thousand individual products coming into the warehouse. And they have to get into the right box at the right time. They have to be stored right. And they have to get to the right person at the right time, right? <laughs> so it's like this huge like game of, uh, you know, this huge like, bowl of spaghetti that we got to sort of, uh, you know, use technology to manage, I guess. And um, but it's also a very human thing, too. And so yeah, uh, something like 60 people sort of working on pulling this thing off every week. It's, 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 quite, a, it's quite an undertaking, but I think... I had a farm come uh, visit us a couple weeks ago. They're a, a, a farmer, a sheep farmer in, in Washington County. And, and they uh, gave him a little tour of the warehouse. I do a little 15-minute tour, which you should come do sometime. But uh, they looked around and they're like, you did it. You like you built, we call these like food hubs as they're sort of what these are, you know. And so, man, you actually did it. <laughs> and so it's it's funny to look at it from that perspective and be like, yeah, I guess we did. 
Yeah. So, so you talk about it being a, a people problem. Obviously, I'm, I'm feel fairly confident guessing that it's not like Amazon robots flying around a warehouse. Like it's people packing food into boxes. So, in terms of what you had to learn in that domain, because that's very different than writing like databases and, and you know building software. It's it's in certain ways a technical problem that requires you know uh, a good thinking process to work through. But it's also very different in terms of like managing people and and you know there's there's a whole supply chain logistics <laughs> industry right for for good reason. So what have you had to learn specifically about that move into the physical world and being responsible for people and atoms doing what they're supposed to do to the best of your ability? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question. I mean, I think like it comes down to one of those insights that we said earlier is like that in this business every dollar every dollar matters and like you're constantly like looking at every you know if we can if we can drop the delivery cost by 25 cents in a week you know or there's something that that's a massive um that's a massive win so it's like looking at every every piece of that process and you know continuing to improve every week has been been the best thing but i think like uh I don't know. It's a good question. Because <laughs> when you when you listen to a story like that of Stitch Fixes, which is kind of in a certain way like the Blue Apron and HelloFresh story, but for for fashion, th- she'll talk about like we just had to like get this you know logistics guru to basically come in and like right. set our stuff up because we we're trying to do things a little bit differently than had been done before. So there's some you know tried and true best practices of maybe food logistics that are already known, like quantified, like have been figured out. But because we kind of have this novel take, it requires you know little bit of a secret sauce, a little bit of a, a different approach. Because mm-hmm. hmm. it also sounds like you guys have it verticalized. If you're also in, you're not, you're not, you're clearly no longer working with that original uh, delivery company, but you guys are right. delivering it yourself. So you have a really verticalized solution to this and not like, Hey, you know, this vendor does that, this vendor does that. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly been something to struggle with is like how much of, how much of the whole thing are we going to do ourselves versus how much are we going to, um, put out to a third party. Although, like in the case of our logistics, like about fifty percent of our deliveries are done by our own drivers, and fifty percent are done by um third party logistics companies. But you know, they have our name on the side of the the vehicle, so like they're sort of contracted out for the long term for us. But we haven't been able to figure out how to use like Uber or something to do the delivery. Yeah. Um. So we sort of tried to build the system, I guess, around some of that. Like I think because we're we're like, we're really hyper local and focused. So just like something like delivery, we found it just makes like, we've sort of built our system around, you know, you're just getting one box a week from like the, the Harvey member can only get one box a week from us. That's like just, just the way it is. And so what that allows us to do is sort of like professionalize our, um, our driving team. Right. Because like we have 40 hours a week of work for them to do rather than like, a Grubhub or something where they just need like gigs. Yeah. So that, that's one thing I was listening to a, a business breakdown of Grubhub, which is interesting. It's like they do, um, their drivers are lucky to do two deliveries an hour and our drivers are doing, you know, 12 to 15 an hour, depending on, you know, what route they're on or whatever. Right. And so just that, <laughs> like that enormous could be the whole business, you know, when you're talking about this kind of business, right? Yeah. That's the difference between, yeah, 0% profit margin and, three probably you know something like that (laughs) yeah awesome well um this is a really cool business like there's a spectrum (laughs) of businesses we talk to 
And, you know, I love my like cybersecurity people and stuff like that. Yeah. Not as cool as, as, as your business. That's one, one podcaster's opinion. Um, so I hope that it continues to grow. I hope that you guys continue to figure stuff out and deliver great food. Um, and I'll obviously be eating it. But um, before we aim towards wrapping up, Simon, yes. asking our standard last questions, uh, was there anything else you were hoping to share today about Harvey, about, you know, food economies, about industrial agriculture that <laughs> I didn't give you a chance to? I think so. I think, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, no, covered a lot. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, then, if people want to learn more about you and Harvey, what digital coordinates can we provide people to learn more? We're on all of the different social platforms as Eat Harvey, and that's V I E, short for Harvest. Sometimes it's a question I get. I didn't well, know how that. does Harvey come? So it's Harvey, short for Harvest. Ah, I thought of it as you know a guy's name maybe a, a, an uncle or a grandpa or something right. that was an homage to it, but that's Perfect. good harvey harvest makes sense <laughs> harvey feels like it's your friend like oh harvey's harvey's dropping my food off today right. he's, yeah exactly he's, he's got me covered <laughs> i've been called mr harvey as well so that's like another moniker for i me. like that right. have you thought about any sort of like mascots or like you know uh or animated like characters or something or uh yeah an animated carrot yeah to just to represent the, the brand of the company i'm into <laughs> it i'm a huge carrot guy you can ask her aren't i a huge carrot guy <laughs> We'll get you a carrot suit. You can like walk around yeah. downtown Pittsburgh or something. Me and Patsy could go sell, uh, sell, <laughs> sell some Harvey subscriptions. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, we're going to link that all in the show notes. Uh, no images of me in a carrot suit yet, uh, but everything uh, Harvey's got going on, uh, going com slash podcast is the place to find that for every episode of the show or in the app where you're probably listening to it right now. But before I let you go, Simon, I would like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable challenge to the audience. Cool. My challenge will be just cook a meal for yourself and just think about where it came from and think about all the hands that touched it and, you know, uh, all the different, I think we can see a lot of our economy in food. We can see a lot of our community in food. So just make a meal and think about the people that made it possible. Beautiful. I love that challenge. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We just went deep with Simon Huntley. Hope you're out there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thanks for listening to the end of my interview with Simon. If you enjoyed it, you'd like our past conversation with Christian Simmons. We talk about selling liquor, working with local distilleries, and the way that Christian has sold throughout his entire career. Go check it out.